Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Without much further ado from me, because this is the last person you need to hear talking about this subject. I don't know, where is China? Please welcome Alex Ritchie and Rana Mitter, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Well, it's a, it's a great honor for me to have such an incredible, uh, distinguished guest, uh, Oxford University professor, specialist in China, uh, and, and many, many, many layers of, of, of China's past, present, uh, incredible books. Uh, the ones I think that are probably most pertinent to us are The War Against Japan, so 1937 to 45, and also, the, I think, the latest book, unless you've got something up your sleeve which we don't know about yet, which is China's Good War. So the first section, I think, we'll talk about uh, uh, more to do with you know, what happened in China in, in the Second World War, because it's, you know, we all know about Normandy landings, we all know about the Battle of the Bulge, we all know about the Blitz, but, but I, I would wager a lot of us really don't know much about what happened in China in the, in the war. And then the second part is really this question of how the Chinese are now using uh, history of the Second World War uh, in, in a way, and sort of manipulating it in some ways for their contemporary politics. So my first question is, um, can you give us a kind of a rundown of what happened in, in China? How did the war begin? And, um, and what happened, effectively? Absolutely. So, um, Alex, thanks for that. And also, it's a huge privilege for me to be here in the company of uh, someone who is known as one of the premier historians of another area of World War II that isn't as well known as it should be, at least in Western Europe. And that's what happens in the, in the East. And in some ways, there are some com connections there in terms of the way in which the Chinese thought about themselves as also suffering many of the horrors that uh, Central and Eastern Europe underwent during that, uh, that period. So there are connections there, and perhaps we'll make some of those as we, we converse. And huge pleasure to be here in, in, in person as well uh, at uh, We Have Ways of Making You Talk. I will take a minute or two just to say something about the outline of World War II in China for the simple reason that it does tend to be the least well-known theater of the best-known war. Uh, World War II is, at least you know, I think for everyone in this tent, an extremely well-known area. And even when it comes to the Asian War, I think there will be people here who know quite a bit. But China certainly is one of the theaters that tend to be under-examined. So some of the very key bullet points that are worth 
knowing. First one is the sheer scale of the war. First of all, of course, the China War, China against Japan, is the single longest theatre of World War II because it begins, if you want to take one particular, I think, appropriate dating, with the outbreak of fighting between Chinese and Japanese troops just outside Beijing on the 7th of July 1937, more than two years before the outbreak of the war that you know very well, of course, Alex, um, in, in Poland. Um, then it is the war that kills very large numbers of people, not the huge scale that the Soviet Union suffered, which of course does remain the largest single one country uh, death toll, but certainly the still tentative, but nonetheless, I think, um, broadly indicative figures that we have suggest 10 to 12 million deaths in World War II in China. Just to be clear, not all combat casualties, but also including events such as, to give one example, the horrific Henan province famine of 1942-43, to 43, caused pretty much directly by the effects of war and killing something like four million people from starvation uh, in that event alone. And so once you start putting together events like that, along with the combat casualties, military and civilian casualties too, the numbers um, add up. And then the um, third statistic I want to give, because it also gets to the question of why the rest of us should care about this particular combat, is that uh, the uh, theater of combat is that more than half a million Japanese troops were held down by the Chinese at some level fighting not quite but almost on their own between 1937 and 1941 until Pearl Harbor. I know it is the case that occasionally Americans and even Brits can indulge themselves with the idea that there wasn't really a war in Asia until Pearl Harbor in 1941 but I think you would be hard put to make that case to very large numbers of Chinese both Chinese nationalists under the then leader of China, Chiang Kai-shek, and Chinese communists under the uh, still pretty famous Mao Zedong, later to become Chairman Mao, you'd be hard put to tell them that their four and a half years of combat against the Japanese were not a serious war at that time. So a little outline there of some of the key facts and figures, and I'm sure we'll talk more about the narrative and the story as we go on, Alex. So what, what were the Japanese up to? Why, were they, why did they invade? What was, what was the background for this? What, what, what did they want to achieve in, in, with the invasion of China? Broadly speaking, I would say that the events that led up to that outbreak of war in the summer of 1937 in China were the product of two major ideological forces coming into an inexorable clash in, uh, in China's territory in 1937. Those forces had been brewing up over the previous three to four decades. On the one hand, one of those forces was Chinese nationalism. Uh, I won't go into the kind of detailed, granular history of China during that period, but very broadly speaking, China begin, began to become uh, invaded, occupied by outside powers, including the British, the French, Americans, Japanese, really from the mid-19th century, starting with the, the Opium Wars, when, for instance, Britain took Hong Kong, not given back, of course, until the 1990s, 1997. And then, in the decades following, large numbers of foreign countries essentially were able to invade and occupy physically parts of China or else impose trading regimes or special privileges for themselves in China's territory without any particular uh, willingness on the part of China to concede. So by the early 20th century, even though the last emperor of China, a five-year-old boy at the time, you've seen Bertolucci's movie, you may remember that, um, was overthrown by um, a middle-class revolution in the year 1911. Nonetheless, the new Chinese republic that formed at that point still didn't manage to stabilize itself. It was highly 
nationalistic in the sense of having young patriotic figures who wanted to create a stable republic. And you, of course, expert on interwar Poland, um, Alex, you know, figures like Pilsudski, Domowski and others very much have counterparts, young, ardent nationalists, men and women in China at that time. But they realized that their country was still vulnerable to the fact that in the end, local military warlords, rather than a republican constitutional form of government, was what controlled power in China. But then on the other side, the other ideological force that was growing up just on the other side of the East China Sea was Japanese imperialism. Japan, unlike China, had managed to modernize itself in the face of Western empires very, very swiftly in the late 19th century, a process known as the Meiji Restoration. They modernized their education, their constitution, um, their military, certainly, uh, conscript military from the old samurai you know, years of training with the sword, instead the conscript with the, with the rifle. But above all, Japan decided it needed an empire to play at the top table. And by the early 20th century, you find more and more territory, Taiwan, parts of Manchuria, Korea, all come under Japanese rule. And by the 1930s, first in 1931, with the invasion of Manchuria up in the northeast, the occupation of this huge territory, size of France and Germany combined by Japanese troops, by the time you get to 1937, and there's a clash between locally garrisoned Japanese troops outside Beijing and Chinese troops, Chiang Kai-shek, the then leader of nationalist China, a fractious but just about united Republican Chinese country, he writes in his diary, we have access to his diaries these days, he says, is this the moment to make the choice? I either appeasement, a term we know very well from the West, give the Japanese a bit more territory, give them the railways they want, hope they can spend a few more years strengthening the Chinese troops, or is this the moment finally to say no? And as we now know from history, on the 7th of July, 1937, China's troops, Chiang Kai-shek, their commander, said no and opened up what we now think of as the first phase of the Asian side of World War II. So how much popular support did Chiang Kai-shek have for this, for this action? Was it, was it very, very much supported by the Chinese population or was it very isolated? Chinese nationalism, in terms of patriotic willingness to resist the enemy, was real but patchy during the 1930s. There's a wonderful book um, from about 40, 50 years ago by the historian Eugen Weber called Peasants into Frenchmen, which is about, you know, well, of course, I'm sure. The process of basically taking people with a relatively traditional, inward-looking, agrarian viewpoint and turning them into modern nationalist, cosmopolitan French men and indeed women. And turning peasants into Chinese was part of the nationalist project that the war accelerated during that time. Now, many Chinese at that time who lived out in the countryside were not necessarily people who had any great awareness of abstract concepts such as the nation or um, you know, what a Chinese republic might be like. But the war forced certain choices on them. So, for instance, young men were being recruited, not conscripted at first, that came later, but being recruited. And when they were recruited in the countryside, it had to be explained why they were being called out to the army and what it was that they would be doing when they served. Yes, they would be paid, but they also had to have a sense of purpose. And the propaganda and educational system, both of the Chinese nationalists and their allies, the communists, basically did a lot of propaganda to make sure that people understood what this national mission, mission was. It was also actually very important, the war, um, Alex, in terms of creating a sense of national identity amongst many of China's women, who had traditionally not necessarily been brought into the idea of nationhood, but by making it clear that women were part of that total 
War Society in terms of being there, first of all, in lots of areas such as um, health services and so forth, very important for keeping the, the army healthy, but also more broadly as a newly defined citizen republic. All of these ideas spread slowly, patchily, but much more recognisably during the years of combat against the, uh, against the enemy. So how important was Chiang Kai-shek as, as an individual, as a figure? If he hadn't existed, would the war have gone completely differently, or was he really not that important as a, as a, as a historical figure, as a leader? So Chiang Kai-shek, I think, is really a very, very important but highly underrated figure as a war leader. But I'm going to qualify that slightly by saying that I think more and more, as I've considered this period of the war, it's become clear to me that actually he wouldn't have got nearly as far as he did had he not been in a double act. His wife, Sung Mei Ling, Madame Chiang Kai-shek, who I've actually made a BBC podcast available for free for anyone who wants to download it, <laughs> uh, called Asia's First Power Couple. Because actually, Madame Chiang Kai-shek, who married Chiang Kai-shek in 1927, was very different from him. He came up through the military. He had trained in the Japanese military briefly at the Japanese Military Academy. He was a warlord, essentially man on horseback. Um, very little. He had been ab abroad a few times, Soviet Union, Japan, but not really a foreign language speaker, not very cosmopolitan in that sense, although you know, quite well educated. Madame Chiang Kai-shek, completely different. She came from a southern Chinese trading family. She and her sisters were sent off to Wellesley College in Massachusetts. Uh, she learned fluent, if rather florid, English. And during World War II, she became China's face to the West and to the US in particular. I think she was only the second ever person, man or woman, to address the Joint Houses of Congress in 1943 when China needed a massive uh, war, lo war loan. So these two together, formed a very, very important face both to China and the world when Japan invaded in 1937 and the war began. Because Chiang Kai-shek was the figure who above all was there to rally the troops, both literally and more broadly, in terms of being a figure who symbolized the resistance. And let me explain briefly, if I may, Alex, what that means in this context, because I think it goes on to explain actually why we who think about the wider global war should consider Chiang Kai-shek important. So let's take a, a scenario, an alternative scenario, but not one that's very far outside the reality. A year on, 1938, middle of 1938, not a year that's even outside Asia counted as part of World War II usually, but from the Chinese it very much was. Things are going really badly. The massacre of Nanjing, the so-called rape of Nanking, uh, killing of tens of thousands, possibly even more than that, of civilians, innocents, in the streets of China's capital by the Japanese. The retreat of China's leadership into the interior, to Chongqing, this um, Chongqing, as it was known, the, the city at the confluence, the Yangtze and the Jialing rivers in the interior of, uh, of, of China. But almost all the diplomatic observers at the time, the British, the Americans, are looking at this and saying, these guys are going to fail. They cannot possibly win. If you hear any echoes with current wars, perhaps in Europe, I you know, offer them to you without further, further comment. The logical thing will be to do what the Japanese were offering, which is to go to Chiang Kai-shek and say, look, you can't win, you fought bravely, we'll give you a deal, we'll keep you in power, and you know, we'll make sure you have as much autonomy as we're willing to, 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 to tolerate. And it would have been a sensible deal to take, which actually many Western diplomats thought that he both could and should. Chiang Kai-shek, rather like certain other Western leaders who are very well known to us, said no, that he was never going to surrender, that it was absolutely unthinkable in terms of China's destiny that he should give up and allow China to essentially become a Japanese colony. But think for a moment what would have happened if he had. In 1938, China does a deal. It becomes a sort of semi-colony, a sort of Vichy-type uh, China. Um, and that, of course, means that the war in Europe, which breaks out a year later, 
never has the chance to become a global war linked up with the war in Asia because you can't get to Pearl Harbor in the way that we now know historically through the situation in which the Japanese have essentially won the war in China before the war in Europe's even begun. There are other scenarios you can find out about, you can make up about Japanese expansionism. Maybe the West would have got into the war a different way. But the world war that we know is very much a product of Chiang Kai-shek and Mao Zedong, but both of them, the communists and nationalists in China's irrational, but I think we have to say very admirable decision in 1938 to keep on fighting when logic would have told them that they should have done deal with the Japanese. How shocking was, I mean, we, most everybody I'm, I'm sure has heard of the rape of Nanking, but how shocking was that to, to the Chinese fighting and how many other disasters, massacres and so on like this happened that we've never heard of? How bad was it effectively? Japanese treatment, uh, Japanese military treatment of civilians in large parts of China during World War II was brutal and repeated. So the rape of Nanking, the Nanjing massacre, the killings that took place between December 1937 and January 1938 over about six weeks were perhaps the most notable and egregious example of this. And the evidence that we have, not least from third-party observers, missionaries, teachers, and others from Western countries who kept meticulous diaries and records of exactly what happened, um, all of these you know, show exactly in detail quite how horrific it was. But these were not the only occasions, because actually there were many other examples. The city of Xuzhou, big railhead in uh, eastern China, in Shandong, also suffered a huge um, slaughter of civilians in the spring of 1938. There are plenty of other examples. I mean, one other example, you mentioned the Blitz. Uh, actually, so I think perhaps um, Al mentioned the Blitz in the introduction. Everyone, I assume, actually, let me just do a quick um, head count, if I may. Um, how many people here know about the London Blitz? Okay, if anyone hadn't put their hands up, I'd be a bit worried, particularly if you're like, <laughs> are you at the wrong festival, you know? <laughs> hey, on why is that way if you need to go? Okay. How many people here know about the Chongqing Blitz? Okay, so again, with this audience, not surprised a few hands, but it wasn't exactly the entire tent. In the period from 1938 to 41, and then to some extent up to 43, China's temporary wartime capital at Chongqing was repeatedly bombed by the Japanese, not during the winter months when actually the city is covered by a, a dense fog that means it's very difficult to actually find your target. But during the spring, summer into early autumn, it's an easy target. It was a wooden city entirely. There's an astonishing film which was lost. It actually won the best um, special, uh, special documentary Oscar in I think 1941 or 42. It's called Kukan. Um, and then it was lost. And I think it's now been refound. It's available, I think, on, on streaming services, um, which actually shows footage, some of the early Technicolor footage of Chongqing on fire, because it's essentially being hit by these, not just ordinary bombs, but incendiary bombs by the Japanese. In, on 3rd or 4th of May, 1939, 27 repeated sorties came across the city over two days from Japanese bombers just trying to bomb the place into submission. Chiang Kai-shek in his diary, and he's in the city, he's you know, defending it from just outside, writes, you know, why he was a Christian, amongst other things. Um, he was Christian, but also a Buddhist and a Confucian, so we could get to that another time. And he writes, you know, why does God and Jesus not strike down the enemy for the horrors they're committing on the, on, on, on the city? But this is also recorded by huge numbers of witnesses who lived in Chongqing that the city essentially turned as, you know, poetic but you understand why, into a sea of fire because essentially incendiary bombing was being used as a terror tactic to try and get them to surrender. So, you know, massacres by sword, yes, but also firebombing for many became part of not exactly every day, at least a regular part along with air raids of the everyday existence in wartime China 
years before it became something mainstream in Britain and in Europe. Yeah, that's exactly right, because we th think of the first terror bombing, it was Guernica and then, and then uh, Velion and Warsaw, which is already 1939, but this is predates this, and, and it's this idea that you can bomb civilians indiscriminately and just kill them and it's fine. Um, the, the question I had was, was obviously the Imperial Japanese forces are, are very powerful by this point, and they've all, all accrued a great deal more territory, therefore resources, etc. How did the Chinese fight? How did they manage to fight off these very, very powerful forces? So the story of China's fight back against the Japanese is both heroic and tragic. It's heroic because the answer to your question, put very simply, Alex, is with great difficulty. Um, you know, China was a largely agrarian country. It had very large armies in technical terms of counting headcount, but the number who were actually well-trained was very limited. Now, during the 1930s, you do get significant amounts of training actually that come in from Weimar Germany, essentially German uh, generals and senior officers who admittedly of course had lost but nonetheless understood a great deal about battlefield tactics and the ones who I think will be you know, best known in this grouping in terms of names would be Hans von Zicht and Alexander von Falkenhausen both of whom were significant military advisors to Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist um, government and the German trained and German influenced troops were beginning to build up that was part of the point of that that diary entry I mentioned about the start of war if Chiang Kai-shek and others had left it a bit longer and made more concessions to the Japanese. The flip side would have been they would have had more time to train more crack troops, but in the end they said no. And a very large number of those really crack troops were destroyed in um, Shanghai in the first major battle of the war in August of 1937. I don't know if anyone here has seen the movie The 800, which came out about a year ago. Yeah, a few people. And again, if you have the chance and opportunity on streaming to do it, it's a fictionalised but actually quite emotionally effective story of some of the last of the Chinese troops who were holed up in a warehouse in November 1937 fighting against the Japanese before you know, finally giving up the, uh, the, uh, the battle. And the film was a huge success in, in China, one of the reasons being that this event still has huge resonance. But then if you fast forward to um, the later years of the war, perhaps pre-Pearl Harbor, by about 1940, so a year before Pearl Harbor, almost all of the best troops have been you know, slaughtered, really. China's own headquarters, I mentioned, have moved inland to the southwest, which is not familiar territory for Chiang Kai-shek and his Nationalist Party. So he's reliant more on a lot of warlord troop recruitment that isn't so reliable from his point of view. And then more and more people are just getting killed. And eventually, they have to move to conscription, which, of course, as in many countries, is very, very unpopular indeed. People are basically marched away, often you know, literally with ropes around them, to areas well outside the area where they're, where they're from, because otherwise they're worried that they'll escape and just run back home. So this means that then soldiers are fighting in territory that's very unfamiliar to them. And if you come from southern China, which is humid and damp and warm, and you're sent off to central China, which is you know, more like here, basically, you know, plains, territory, drier, very, very unfamiliar terrain, people even speaking different forms of Chinese that aren't mutually incompatible, you have a huge problem in terms of supply, morale, the capacity to actually renew your capacity as a set of armed forces, along with the feeling that actually they're not always constantly fighting. And keeping these large armies on the ground and fed and watered 
never quite sure when combat is going to happen, actually doesn't do a great deal in terms of morale and maintenance of standards either. So over the period of the war, you get a definite and real degradation of military standards, which is com you know, very much criticised by the Americans when they come in uh, to advise after 1941. But what I think is never fully understood is that that comes after a long period of throwing everything into the machine and finding huge amounts of it essentially get you know, sliced and minced up during mm -hmm. the course of uh, a very, very brutal war. So we all know Churchill's response to Pearl Harbor when he danced around and said, hooray, you know, we're saved. Um, what was the Chinese response to Pearl Harbor? Did they understand what this, what this meant, the significance of it, and, and what was their reaction to it? Oh, God, yes. Um, Chiang Kai-shek, particularly in his diary, uh, said he put on uh, some religious music on the gramophone and uh, read out a section of one of the psalms that says, uh, my enemy shall be cast down and I shall you know, stand righteously above him, or words to that, uh, uh, that effect. Chiang Kai-shek, like Churchill, understood exactly what it meant for the United States to enter the, the Asian war, that it would be won, not immediately and not simply, but that it would be won on that, uh, uh, on that front. In terms of wider society, well, for instance, um, the communists, uh, Mao Zedong, who of course were enemies of Chiang Kai-shek and the famous Long March of the 30s before the war began, was essentially an attempt by Chiang Kai-shek to try finally to eliminate Mao and his communists. He didn't succeed, as we know, but he got damn close. So Mao essentially was part of that wider policy pushed by Stalin that in the fight against Nazism and fascism and the Japanese, everything must be done first of all to essentially make sure that the fascist side don't, didn't succeed and therefore alliance with capitalist countries was temporarily going to be okay and therefore Pearl Harbor was a, was a, was a good development. In terms of the wider population, the ordinary population, I mean out in the countryside, probably doesn't make a huge amount of difference. But there are notable things in China's cities. I'll just give you one example, because I think it's rather, rather nice. So there's an account in Chongqing, the, the wartime capital, where there had already been unofficial assistance from the famous Flying Tigers, for instance. Um, General Claire Lee Chenault and his AVG, American Volunteer Group, nicknamed the Flying Tigers, providing air support. But of course, as volunteers, big quote marks, FDR knew all about it, but of course, couldn't officially get into the war. Once the war has begun, then they get regularized into the, the US um, Air Force. But when it's regularized and you have the Americans coming into Chongqing in a, in a big and um, visible way, um, there's a sort of American fever amongst many of the kind of young middle-class Chinese. And one uh, professor was recorded as finally kind of snapping at one of the young women in his university class who started speaking in her, she speaking Chinese, but she started sort of putting on American accent while speaking Chinese. <laughs> and uh, he finally snapped at her saying, young woman, speak Chinese properly. I'm your professor, not your boyfriend, which <laughs> I thought was rather nice, uh, nice touch. That's brilliant. So you, you've mentioned, obviously, Chiang Kai-shek, and you've touched on uh, Mao Zedong, but tell us a little bit more about this, I suppose, rivalry and what happens as the war progresses between the two of them. Yes. So essentially, China's World War II experience is, through much of its time, the opposition of different forces. And again, many of you here will be familiar with the war in France and the idea, at least among some historians, that as much as a war of you know, the Allies against the, the Axis, it's also une guerre franco-française. It's a war between the French and the French, the Vichy and Free French, or the Colonial French and the Metropolitan French, whatever it might be. And there's a strong element of that in China as well. Of course, at its base, it's a war about for Chinese resistance against the invasion by Japan. It's also an international war in terms of placement in a post-war future. So China moving from being this semi-colonial, highly agrarian country to where it ends up in 1945, which is as one of the five permanent members of the new UN Security Council. 
Within that, though, I mean, that's all in terms of China's sta status rising because of the war. But the area where it begins really to fall apart is that there's a fundamental political division at the heart of the Chinese um, politics at that time. And that is between the Chinese nationalists, the government, the officially recognized government of Chiang Kai-shek, known also as the Kuomintang or Kuomintang, and the Chinese Communist Party, an insurgency from the countryside, nearly wiped out during the famous Long March of the 1930s, but not quite, and then essentially both by the Americans and the Soviets, forced into uh, an uneasy alliance with each other during the wartime years. But by the middle of the war, by about 1940, 1941, that tentative alliance between the nationalists and the communists is beginning to break down in a big way, because both sides are beginning to position themselves for what they know what will come afterwards, which is a civil war in which only one side can actually prevail. And that means that essentially uh, the communists find themselves sticking to a whole variety of military tactics. I mean, again, one of the things that many people will know develops on the communist side during World War II is guerrilla warfare. You know, this is one of the things, Mao's famous essay of 1938 on protracted war is still one of the best documents, still read in, I was gonna say in Chinese military war colleges, uh, war colleges and military colleges today, but actually also in Western ones, but very much drawing on the experience of, of, of World War II. Whereas the set piece battles are being fought almost entirely by the nationalist uh, uh, armies at this, uh, at this time. And that's partly to do with the kind of territory that they were in, some territories more sort suited to guerrilla warfare than positional warfare. But in other cases, you do have a sense that the communists in particular, but also to some extent the nationalists, are trying to preserve as much of their forces as possible for what in the end they think will be a battle to the death for control of post-war China. And indeed, as it turned out, they were, they were not wrong about that uh, because with a very short period of perhaps a year to have, uh, nine months to a year of attempted negotiations brokered by General George Marshall at the end of World War um, II, 45 to 46, the two sides essentially go into all-out and ultimately zero-sum warfare in the Civil War, which ends with communist victory in 1949. So the Civil War, does it begin effectively in what you're saying before the, effectively before the end of the war? And what is the Chinese, generally the Chinese response to the bombs on Nagasaki, Hiroshima, and the knowledge that the Japanese are now out of the war? What, what, what happens quickly in that timeline? Sure. The Chinese Civil War, I mean, very briefly, in a sense, it's, it was going all the way from the 1920s up to the 1940s with World War II almost as a sort of interval of internationalization in the middle. But certainly the feeling, even during the war against the Japanese, that a war between the communists and nationalists would come next was absolutely part of, uh, uh, of, that, uh, of that mixture. 1945, and again, I spent a lot of time reading diaries and accounts of how people felt about in China, uh, how they felt about the sudden, you know, ending of the war, which of course, since nobody in China knew about the Manhattan Project, and uh, they were only aware very briefly beforehand of the Soviet invasion of Manchuria, the two trigger events in terms of the end of the war in, uh, in Asia, there was a great deal of surprise. They vary in terms of responses. Uh, Wang Shijie, who was China's foreign minister at the time, was in Moscow at that time negotiating with Stalin about uh, a pact between the nationalist Chinese government, the Soviets. And actually the first thing, weirdly, I think even now in his diary for that day is, we hear the Americans have used this astonishing bomb with amazing effect. I, he says then, I hear it cost $15 million. <laughs> I was thinking, like, I would have thought the cost was the first thing that <laughs> came to mind, but he was quite intrigued. Turned out he was quite right about the cost, as it turned out. It just wasn't, wasn't, wasn't the point. Lots of other people, out, I've got also read diaries of young communist revolutionaries in their 20s who are out in the countryside, sort of 
agitating. And basically they say, yeah, everyone knows this is the end of Japan, so you know things happen. Uh, the butcher had his busiest day that year as he slaughtered all his oxen and everybody basically had beef, which they would normally have. So there's a huge amount of celebration, but one of those same diaries, the revolutionaries, I think sums up what I think is, is the sense of foreboding in which she says at that point, everyone's, eat, what's the event? everyone's eating beef stew and soup today and having a great time, but even now, I can feel that this is not the end of the story and that there are, there's more to happen and I feel uncertain and unhappy about, about this. So I think people knew it wasn't going to be happy ever after. Yeah. What about um, people who'd collaborated or collaborationists with the Japanese and what, who were they and what happened to them after the... After the uh, A fascinating the group of people and again, you know, we mentioned briefly Vichy and of course the story of Vitul Quisling and all the others, you know, in the European side have become very much part of that wartime story. So they're Chinese equivalents also are immensely important. I mentioned before my 1938 scenario about what would have happened if China had you know, flipped. And actually, what happened in real life in 1938 was that Chiang Kai-shek, for reasons I've mentioned, refused to surrender to the, the Japanese. But not so much one of his seconds in command, a man named Wang Jingwei. Uh, again, you know, a really senior revolutionary figure. I mean, a, a serious player in the Chinese uh, nationalist revolution, the 20s and 30s. And he was persuaded to come over to the other side. And essentially, after a, quite a bit of hanging around in Hanoi and various other places, was allowed to establish a regime in the old nationalist capital in 1940. Now, in some ways, the collaborationist regime that Wang Jingwei set up was different in terms of its self-justification from the Vichy regime in France. Because Vichy, or the État français, which Laval and others were in, in charge of, was basically a pétain, were put in charge of what was essentially a reinvented state, the idea that the old French Third Republic had failed and something new had to rise from the, uh, from the ashes. That wasn't what Wang Jingwei said. What he said was, I have always been the real leader of the Guomindang, the Nationalist Party. Chiang Kai-shek is a traitor. Why? Because he's basically working with the Americans and with the Soviets. And this means that he obviously doesn't have China's best interests at heart. And at least I'm working with Asians, even though they happen to be Japanese. I know it's a tortured connection, but it, you know, it worked, for, um, worked for him. And I think we can see to some extent, so in other words, he argued that he was actually restoring the government which had sort of disappeared upriver in 1937 and was now finally being brought back. But just to finish the thought, one of the things that I think gives us pause for thought is what happened after the war. Wang Jingwei himself, the big collaborator, died um, of, of cancer in 1944 in, in, in Japan, in fact. But his widow, who was also a very significant uh, political actor in her own right, a woman named Chen Bijun, survived and was put on trial in one of the you know, war trials for collaboration in Shanghai after the war. And she made the case for herself and her husband, her husband actually more than, more than herself, saying, after my husband agreed to collaborate with the Japanese, not one person was bombed to death on Chinese territory that he controlled. That only happened where Chiang Kai-shek refused to surrender. We were doing our best to save lives. She got a round of applause in public from the Shanghai public in the courtroom, and actually a relatively pretty light sentence because the court knew that there were plenty of people in occupied China whose view was that actually the government had fled, left them behind to fend for themselves, and had no right simply to come back and tell them that they had been in some ways morally deficient in terms of staying behind under collaborationist rule and doing the best that they could. Tell me about the war crimes trials. Were there, was there some equivalent of Nuremberg and who set it up and who was punished and do you think that it came anywhere close to dealing with the criminals of the war? 
So that trial actually, amongst other things, is the subject to, I mean, he's not here, but I can advertise what I think is going to be an extremely good book by the great American historian Gary Bass, uh, who is based at Princeton and is about to publish a big book within the next half year or so on the Tokyo trials of 1948. Technically, the IMTFE, the International Military Tribunal for the Far East. Um, it was an extraordinary um, uh, gathering. I mean, it was actually nicknamed the, the other Nuremberg. That's the name of one of the other books about it by, by Arnold Brackman. Um, and it had a genuinely international group of judges on board. Um, Sir William Webb, Australian as uh, chief um, justice, but also figures from the emergent Asian world. So China, now fully sovereign country, sent a justice, um, Meiru Ao. Newly independent India, just independent one year before, sent Justice Radhabanad Paul. Uh, there are, there are other figures from that, uh, Filipino judges as well, for instance. I think the general feeling is that overall, many of the people who were condemned uh, both to death and to long sentences were probably fairly judged, if not necessarily fairly sentenced, but that nonetheless there was a sort of picking and choosing because by that stage the Americans had decided that Japan was going to have to be a Cold War bulwark against the Soviet Union, and therefore, to some extent, as in Nazi Germany, there were a whole variety of, variety of people who needed to be preserved and in some way kept away from the idea that they'd be placed on a trial. And the real kind of wild card at the end of the trial was the Indian judge, Radhabanad Pal, who was no friend of Western colonialism, he saw it, who basically wanted to acquit, acquit all of the defendants on the grounds that actually they'd been fighting Western imperialism and, you know, you, that, that was the most important thing about them, which is one of the reasons that to this day, Radhabanad Pal is something of a hero in Japan. Yes, <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, so the, the, the West just assumes that Chiang Kai-shek is, is going to take over and China's going to be happily in the fold uh, for signatories to the United Nations and, and various other honorable uh, roles in the post-war world. How did that all unravel? It's extraordinary because in 1945, the expectation of almost everyone, and by everyone I mean everyone from Joseph Stalin to um, an awful lot of the wider Chinese population, is that the government of China, Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist government, would be in charge for a very long time to come. And if you think about it, it makes logical sense from the point of view of decisions that people made. For instance, there is absolutely no way that President Roosevelt and then President Truman would have put China as one of the permanent five members of the UN Security Council if they thought that a communist government was going to take over in less than five years' time. And indeed, the repercussions of that exist to this day. I mean, communist China, PRC, has that seat now and there's no way it's, it's standing down from it. So that is a legacy of that Chiang Kai-shek World War II Chinese government's contribution to the war in the first place. And yet, as you say, within five years, Alex, the entire regime has fallen, its remnants have fled to Taiwan. Why did that happen? Again, in limited time, we won't go through all of the, the reasons in great detail, but just to say that there was a distinct chance, all the way perhaps up to about 1946, even the beginning of 1947, that with the resources that it had, the Chinese nationalist regime could have essentially created a uh, reasonably stable government of its own. By the end of 1947, nobody thought that that was the case, and indeed it proved not to be. The, reason, the things they would have had to do were probably to be more serious about a coalition government with the communists, although the communists, frankly, were not sincere about those negotiations either, but both sides were playing a sort of game of double bluff. Poor General George Marshall, who'd done enough kind of work in World War II, was, poor guy was shipped out to China for a miserable year uh, in which he, you know, basically tried to get the two sides to talk to each other and flew back home the 2nd of February, uh, January 47, uh, saying he just really couldn't, couldn't manage it any, uh, anymore. 
the Guomindang government, the nationalist government coming back in, was hugely racked by corruption. Not entirely surprising because of the kind of degeneration of the state during its exile in wartime years, but you know, people don't want excuses. They wanted uh, something, something better than what they'd, uh, they'd had. And a real sort of breakdown of much of the social fabric of China. You know, the rivers where you would normally ship both people and goods up and down, they'd all be mined by the Nationalist Navy before retreating. In, and then they, you know, the demining did take place, but it took a long time to happen. While that happens, if you haven't got rivers, you haven't got railways, you haven't got roads, getting stuff, people, foodstuffs, supplies around China becomes very, very difficult. And then on the flip side, the communists had learned a lot of lessons from World War II and afterwards. And they also, their risk calculus turned out to be both daring and in the end well judged. So particularly in the middle of 1947, the Dabiashan campaign, which Mao and others basically masterminded, was a very, very sort of showy gamble to try and take a certain part of central China. It could have gone horribly wrong. It didn't. It meant that in the end, by mid-1947, they had captured a very central part of China. They also captured Manchuria up in the northeast. And over the next year and a half, it just became easier and easier to pincer different parts of Chinese territory and essentially place them under communist uh, control. So a lot of factors came together, but in the end, none of them favoured the nationalists. So I think uh, keep looking anxiously at our at our time. Uh, so I'd like to sort of move on to the sort of second part um, because we could go on for many many hours about uh, the perception of the war now. And and I, I have an interesting sort of anecdote, and I'd like to know if it if it means anything. Um, so I went to China a few times in the 1990s, and um, and I never heard anything about the war. It was uh, it really wasn't mentioned, and I don't speak Mandarin. Um, or Cantonese, so I was, uh, you know, translators and so on, so okay. Um, but then I went on an official visit with my father-in-law, because he was getting quite old by then, so I was there to help and so on, and he was foreign minister of Poland, and so we had an official delegation. And this woman, who was our minder, which I knew very well from the communist days in Eastern Europe, kept on going on and on about the similarity between Poland, who'd fought alone, and you know, okay, the French and the British, they pretended to declare war, but they did nothing, and that's just the same as China, and we were the same, and, and it was trying to find this sort of similarity between these two wartime um, occurrences. And I just thought, well, all of a sudden, why on earth is this person all of a sudden talking about the Second World War? This is a bit odd. I, I didn't, it didn't make any sense. I was wondering if, that, if, if, there's any, if that's just anecdotal of them that just happened to work out that way, or was this the moment that the Chinese started to work on their perceptions of the, the official perceptions of the war? It's an immensely important moment. That 1990s moment when you were there was just, I think, when things were, were turning, um, Alex. I mean, on the first uh, point, actually, just to, to, to say, Perceptions of Poland have been in Chinese minds for really quite a long time. In the early 20th century, for a brief time, there was a new verb in Chinese, Bolan, which means to Poland something, which means to make it disappear without trace. <laughs> so <laughs> the verb <laughs> happily fell out of use after 1919, although Amazing. I suppose it might have been reinstated <laughs> in 1939. But you know, nonetheless, it, it, the kind of metaphor of the country yeah. was something that you know, Chinese nationalists who'd never gone close to Poland understood in that sense. But in terms of the memory of war, one of the major, no, the major obstacle in the way of discussion of the Second World War was something that didn't operate in any other major allied belligerent. I'm using my phrase quite, phrasing quite carefully there. Because one way or another, the Americans, the British, 
the um, uh, Soviet Union, of course, started to make use of World War II as a patriotic idea you know, quite early on. It goes up and down, and again, there's brilliant work, well, Alex, you know this very well, in the Soviet Union, um, that shows that you know, it's not a constant in terms of how it's used, but it's always there, one way or another, the great patriotic war. In China, apart from rather stylized mentions of uh, the anti-Japanese war, particularly with the communist role in it, almost nothing was said about it. And that was because all of the other people who were involved in the war against Japan in Chinese territory were persona non grata after 1949. The Americans being heavily involved in providing supplies and training, but you can't talk about them after 1949 because they're the new Cold War enemy. The, the people who did most of the actual fighting, the big Guomindang nationalist armies, well, of course, they've just defeated them and sent them to Taiwan. So you're not going to talk about them as patriots who are actually fighting against the, uh, the Japanese. So that leaves you basically just with the Chinese Communist Party, who, of course, were important. I mean, don't let anyone tell you they didn't have an important role because they, they did. But telling a story in which it's purely about communists versus Japanese is a very limited version of the story. And that changes in the 80s and 90s for a couple of reasons. One is that the personal nature of the animosity between Mao and Zhang had gone by the time both of them had died in the mid-1970s. Um, there's also a desire to try and reunify with Taiwan, still there today, has to be said, um, in which talking perhaps a bit more politely about the nationalist war record of these you know, compatriots who have gone to Taiwan is a better way of trying to win uh, reunification with honey rather than vinegar. So talking up the nationalist war record and saying, well, Chiang Kai-shek was you know, ideologically unsound and he was, right to be he was right that he was defeated, but he did fight against the Japanese. Also enabled large numbers of families with, say, nationalist war veterans in their families to be rehabilitated. There was a large sort of social pressure on that side of things as well. And by the 1990s and 2000s, it became, and really has become, pretty mainstream to say the Guomindang, the nationalists, deserved to be defeated in the civil war, but actually when it came to the war against the Japanese, the Second World War, they played a really significant role, ditto with the Americans and indeed the British when they care to remember us. Um, these are now part of a much broader discussion of the war that emerged for political reasons, but essentially now is a central part of the historiography of World War II in China, and I think even in politically straightened circumstances, is unlikely to revert way back to where it was in the era of Mao, when you could only talk about the Eighth Route Army, the New Fourth Army, and the communist forces. Yeah, and you're absolutely right that, so for example, the Great Patriotic War, there was already a, a, a museum being built to it in 1942 already, so it was very early. Ahead of uh, time. And, yeah. and yeah, <laughs> just to make sure. Um, but but is there anything like the like that sort of commemoration in, in Moscow's Red Square to the to the war now and 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 if not how is the war remembered what why do the Chinese think it's important does it, has it become part of uh, the sort of culture I mean in Britain we it's very much part of a, yeah. our identity so how does that play out in China now it plays out hugely World War two is everywhere in China if you know where to look and you don't have to look that hard so perhaps the best and most iconic example happened uh, in 2015 uh, in Tiananmen Square, you know, a, a fated place in many ways because of the, the horrific killings that took place on 4th of June 1989, as we, we all know. Um, but Tiananmen Square was used on September 3rd, 2015, for a very different event, which was China's VJ Day 70, 70th anniversary celebrations, uh, commemoration celebrations. And the reason that's important is that it was the first time, and so far even now the only time, that a full military parade, including President Xi Jinping and the whole panoply of China's authority, has taken place in Tiananmen Square for an event that was not specifically linked 
either with the history of the Communist Party or the People's Republic of China. So that's how important they thought bringing themselves into the global story of World War II really was, along with a very symbolic event in the middle in which I think about eight veterans, aged between 90 and 102, I think at that point, half of them communists, half of them nationalists, were presented in front of President Xi Jinping. And that was a, a moment you could not possibly imagine happening 30 years, maybe even 20 years earlier. So that was symbolically important. But then beyond that, you know, I've just mentioned the 800, you know, movie that was released just in the year 2020. That made $300 million at the Chinese box office. And it's a tale of nationalist Chinese soldiers fighting the Japanese. Now, we all know that propaganda is very heavy in China, but actually nobody forces people to go and see a movie if, you know, from their own, with their own money if they don't want to see it. And there are plenty of propaganda movies that are given lots of budget but flop because they're not very good. This movie was a movie that people wanted to see. Similarly, one of the biggest hit TV series of 2021 during the pandemic, uh, actually it was 2021, yeah, uh, Chiu Chan, the Autumn Cicada, which is basically about underground communist spies in Hong Kong just before Pearl Harbor. So, you know, we live in a country where, you know, bless us, Dad's Army is still on 55 years after it was produced every Saturday night where um, we can fill a tent with people who are still fascinated by World War II history. Well, if you want to go to another country where you'll meet lots of people who have very similar interests, go to China. I promise you, there are plenty of them there. <laughs> Well, I think um, the the this is we could just go on for hours. This is fascinating, but I think um, I'm just being motioned to that it's perhaps time to ask a few questions to so throw the throw the floor open. It's going to be, I think, a lot of questions. So, um, so as Japan expanded its sphere of influence in China at the beginning of the war, did they make any use of the natural resources that that afforded them? And if not, would that have had a material impact on the outcome of the war, either in China or more more broadly across the rest of the world? Great questions about natural resources and how far, if at all, the Chinese used them. The one they would have loved, they never found, which was China's only major oil um, uh, um, oil uh, uh, find, which was um, only found after the war in a place called Daqing in Manchuria. They kept looking for it. They knew that there was oil there somewhere. They never found it. It was found only by the communists after the war. They did, however, make massive use of Manchuria's other material resources, um, including coal in particular. Fushun and other big uh, coal mining centers in Manchuria were, were well used there. Um, other parts of China, to some extent, part of the problem, though, was that the areas the Japanese controlled tend to be areas where they could get troops up and down on the railway. And so out in the countryside, you have large numbers of communist and nationalist guerrillas who are basically making life very difficult for them. And therefore, keeping a kind of stable industrial base there was more difficult to do. But essentially, Manchuria became a significant source of, uh, of mineral usage. One other element which came, came from Manchuria but elsewhere was the growth of food. Manchuria was a huge place for growing soybeans, which again became a very, very important part of, uh, they are today as well, actually, to be, to be fair. But in terms of uh, diet, this was something that became, Manchurian soybeans became very important to domestic Japanese food intake during the war. And when a lot of Japanese shipping was sunk, actually mostly in the kind of latter half of the, uh, of the war, it became much harder to ship those sorts of food commodities as well as uh, mineral commodities over to the home islands, which was yet another reason why malnutrition became a big issue in um, homeland Japan during that time, leading people to eat actually quite nutritious but not generally favoured foods like um, sweet potato instead. 
Okay, so um, how does uh, World War II figure into both formal and informal relations between the People's Republic of China and Japan today? There's no doubt that the relationship between the People's Republic of China and Japan remains extremely scratchy today. I would say that the primary reasons for that, if we're being frank, are very much to do with the present day. Japan is a major military power in the region. It has a formal alliance with China's opponent, the United States, and China has territorial claims, particularly on islands in the South China Sea, uh, East China Sea, sorry. It has South China Sea, too, but that's not with Japan. And the East China Sea, which are currently under Japanese sovereignty and which China believes should be under Chinese sovereignty. So there are lots of present-day issues that are very, very much fueled by things that are of the present day. However, there is no doubt that the very, very painful history between the two countries continues to be a running sore. And issues on everything from the employment of Chinese, as with Korean, um, uh, sex workers, uh, you know, unpaid sex workers, essentially, um, in Japanese military camps during that period um, has become a huge subject of contention. More to that, things like reparations for the um, uh, bacteriological warfare, which contaminated large amounts of land and which, of course, killed many people uh, through um, infection as well. All of these continue to bubble up in various uh, ways. If one's looking at the reason that... Sometimes a question that gets asked, I think it's a very good question often, is why did Japan and China never reconcile in the way that France and Germany managed to, uh, to, to do? And I think there are lots of reasons, but one very central one is that essentially France and Germany were thrown together politically and educationally by American support, Marshall Plan, all that sort of thing, and the need to find a shared narrative of history of what had happened under the Nazis and how to get past it. Because Japan and China entered such different political journeys so soon after the war, essentially by 1950, China was a communist giant close to the Soviet Union, isolated from the West, and Japan was essentially still a, you know, an, an American colony until 1952 by, by another name. These two countries had almost no opportunity for interaction with each other after that point. And by the time they do interact, which is not really till the mid-70s at the earliest, a generation has gone by, and that ability to share experience and move past it, I think, had been lost, and I suspect probably couldn't be recovered, and remains central even today to the way that the two countries think about each other. Sorry, uh, you mentioned slightly earlier in the talk the notion of German officers advising Chinese military during the early portion of the conflict. Does that impact on the Japanese-German, well, it's a nominal alliance, but does it impact on that at all, or is it just politely brushed under the rug? No, uh, y yes, it does impact. No, it's not brushed under the rug. It's the subject of some quite detailed and frenetic discussions amongst what we come to know as the Axis powers, because Chiang Kai-shek is not ideologically fussy. He cares about one thing, which is trying to regain China's sovereignty. And even though he's a fervent anti-communist, he has absolutely no, you know, if the Soviet Union would have helped him, he would have been quite happy to take their help. The Soviets did provide, actually, volunteer, a bit like, you know, everyone knows about the flying, well, many people know about the flying tigers. Fewer people know that, actually, uh, nearly 200 Soviet um, fighter pilots were sent as volunteers, again, to help over the skies in the Battle of Shanghai in 1937. Um, and Chiang Kai-shek, despite being a fervent anti-communist, was, was fine with, uh, with that. And he would have done a deal with Nazi Germany if they would have provided um, sufficient support to enable him to defend China against the Japanese. And of course, as is also well known, the Germans and Italians 
and the Japanese had an alliance, but they never really trusted each other. They didn't have the kind of mutual agreements that the, the Western allies and the Soviet Union um, did in that sense. So essentially, a lot of discussions were had between what would become the Allied pa the Axis powers as to how far they should ally with each other. But in the end, in 1938, the decision was made very clear from the Japanese side that they did not want na um, Nazi Germany to continue to provide any assistance to um, uh, the uh, the Chinese war effort. And as a result, von Falkenhausen basically, you know, they, they were very, very fond of him. And they sent him out on a ceremonial train from Shanghai. There was actually a Nazi flag on the top of the train, which has been quite well well photographed, which I think was partly a symbol that the Japanese shouldn't bomb it if they saw the, uh, the train <laughs> coming uh, along. And that was the end of that particular period of collaboration. But it was the subject of some controversy. It wasn't a, a done deal until it had been discussed. Thanks for the talk, Rana. Um, I bought your book, uh, Forgotten Ally, last year. Good man. <laughs> Why didn't you buy two? <laughs> well, there's always a chance. As it happens, I actually bought it in Tokyo. So. Oh, right. Not banned there yet, then. Good. That's great. <laughs> but anyway, um, with China, the last few years, um, one of the things we've been hearing a lot about is the Xinjiang region with the Uyghur Muslims. And I was wondering um, what was going on in that region during the Second World War. And if I may, a second question, which is more of a fanboy question. Who was the best Kuomintang general? Oh, God, OK. Right, so two really interesting questions there. Uh, again, I'm sure everyone here will know, but you know, many, many news reports, including from the brilliant John Sudworth of the BBC before he had to, to leave China, have shown deeply disturbing, you know, pretty clearly indicated massive human rights abuses of Uyghur Muslim Chinese citizens. And I phrase it that way because Chinese citizens should have the protection of the Chinese constitution, as is written down in black and white, being held in labor camps, essentially, in parts of, uh, of Northwest China, particularly in Xinjiang. So what's happening there in World War II? Well, it was a very, very fluid area, I think is probably the best way that I can describe it. There was a scramble, as there is to some extent now, for who gets to be the, the, the dominant power in the region. And the Soviet Union, on the one hand, wanted Chiang Kai-shek, whose government, don't forget, was sort of directly south, uh, in the southwest of China, under Xinjiang, you might say, uh, um, geographically, to remain fighting and in power and fighting against the Japanese. But they're also very aware that Xinjiang, then and now, is essentially on the border of the Soviet Union, uh, Russia as it now is, and oh, Central Asia, I'd say, actually, strictly, strictly speaking, but part of the kind of wider Soviet territory. And therefore, they were very keen to try and expand Soviet control into that area. And various separatist movements, which then and now have existed in the region, were essentially given Soviet support. So there was a sort of independent republic of East Turkestan, is one phrase that was used at the time. There's a guy called Shun Shatai, who is the warlord of Xinjiang at the time. And he basically switches sides. He first is quite pro-Soviet, and then you know, violently turns in the other direction uh, in favor of the nationalists and in favor of the Americans. And I say violently because he basically arrests most of the pro-Soviet figures who are prominent in Xinjiang at that time and locks them up. Uh, an example being a well-known Chinese nationalist called Du Zhongyuan, who was the chairman of the Xinjiang Academy at the time and basically suddenly found himself being arrested and, and died in, in prison. So there's a lot of ideological shift around that area. And as for going down general fanboy questions, wow. Um, well, we could do this at length, uh, perhaps over a drink later on, but I will give you a sort of brief answer now. Um, a lot of them were actually very, very good at doing a lot with not much equipment, not much support, not much logistics, and, and not much um, follow-through from, uh, from other uh, sections of the Chinese military. I mean, quite often, 
putting forward a f magnificent performance in one battle was not unknown, but getting actually the kind of follow-up was always very difficult. But I will give you General Xue Ye, um, who fought for the defense of Changsha uh, in Hunan province um, three or four times, and won most of those battles. And when he didn't in the end, I think you know he's not the one who can necessarily be blamed for that. But he used a whole variety of tactics, including the capacity to actually separate off troops and um, have them turn up where the Japanese least expected. And he managed to defend Changsha several times from the Japanese attack. It was a bit unfortunate that Chiang Kai-shek then sent the orders to burn Changsha down anyway, in case the Japanese uh, should uh, uh, get there at some future uh, future moment. Showing again the slightly counterproductive methods that were sometimes used by senior people in the Chinese Chinese leadership. Uh, for many years, the Japanese emperor was depicted as a passive observer. What's the latest thinking now regarding the role of Har Haruhito in the Chinese war and, and obviously the later war with um, the, the Western powers? Yeah. The idea that he was simply, Hirohito, the, the, um, the Showa emperor, was simply a kind of puppet who you know, did marine biology by day and kind of read the odd you know, bit of documentation at night is no longer held to be, to be valid. And if you look at recent work, um, a few years ago, um, Herbert Bix's book on Hirohito himself, or more recently, actually, the um, excellent book, I say this not least because it's by my old student, but it is also excellent. Japan 1941 by Eddie Hotta. And if you haven't read that, then you know, you're interested in the subject. Please do. It's, it's fantastic. Um, looks at the documentation of imperial conferences and what's going on in government at the time and shows that actually the emperor is very involved in discussions on what goes on. So what can we say as we come to the end about his responsibility? The responsibility of the emperor, the Showa emperor, Hirohito, is real, but it's not, I think at the same level as you know, the really senior leaders, someone like uh, Tojo being the obvious sort of person, but before that, um, uh, uh, even uh, before that uh, time, you know, uh, the, the civilian leadership of Japan who essentially lead China into that uh, terrible war. The emperor knows, it's fairly clear, pretty much everything that's going on, and he could have intervened at various points because his word would have been taken with respect to essentially end the, uh, uh, end the war. But it's also worth noting one of the things that he did say, not on the eve of Pearl Harbor, but not that long before, when his government are telling him again in autumn 1941 to you know, raise, the, raise the stakes and do what we will now think of as, as Pearl Harbor. And he said, well, why should we do this? And he was told, well, if we do this, then the war will be over in you know, three months. And he said, yeah, but when you invaded China in 1937, you told me that the whole thing would be over in three months and we're still there, bogged down. So, you know, what gives? I mean, my translation of classical court Japanese is a little, <laughs> a little free in that, in, the, in that case. You know, in other words, he, 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 he wasn't daft in terms of working out where the problems were with this. But in the end, it would seem that he was someone who did not have, in the end, the choice or strength of character to be able to actually put his foot down and say no, which he should have done. He knew what was going on, but I think in the end, the idea that he was at the level of responsibility of both the military and civilian leadership of Japan who took the decisions, that I don't think can be clearly said either. Well, I think, unfortunately, our time has come to an end. I've been given the nod from the left of center here. So I just wanted to thank you again, Rana, for just this amazing talk. And, and I think all of us uh, owe you a round of applause for a really great, great talk. Thank you, Alex, and thank you to the audience and organizers. Brilliant. Thank you. Thanks.